Howdy, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Meet Your Herdmates Sodcast. I am very pleased to be joined today by Dr. Jay Wartman. Um, Jay is a clinical assistant professor in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of British Columbia, mm-hmm. practices in West Vancouver. West Vancouver isn't a location, it's a description, isn't it? Or is it's there a, municip- a West? It's a municipality. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, family medicine, public health, medical administrator, research, you've done a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and most interest perhaps to us today is that you've been almost two decades in this space of research and clinical practice around low carbohydrate nutrition. Mm -hmm. And you've also been author of journal articles and presenting at continuing medical education forums and public Mm -hmm. forums, and you've done this internationally. So thank you for taking the time to join us. It's my pleasure. So I met you first 10 years ago when we both managed to attend the uh, conference in Seattle. Mm -hmm. Um, And prior to that, my exposure to you had been through others, but through a little program called My Big Fat Diet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how, where did, where did Jay Wartman grow up? Uh, well, I was raised in northern Alberta in podunk little towns and uh, uh, was uh, uh, worked, didn't go straight into university. I actually worked in heavy construction in northern Alberta for about 10 years mm. before I went back to school and ended up in medical school. So I'm an Alberta boy, uh, translocated to the west coast and living in West Vancouver, which is one of the most beautiful places to be virtually anywhere. It's a lovely place and we feel very privileged to live here. Mm -hmm. But you've, you've been in various locations throughout Canada. I I seem to recall you've done some things even, Mm -hmm. even into the maritime provinces. Well, I lived in Alberta for quite a few years and I did my training there. I did it, uh, a science degree at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, and then I did my medical school in Calgary. And then when I relocated to Vancouver, it was to take a residency uh, position in family practice out here. And then of course I stayed, but there was a four year interlude where I, I relocated to to, um, uh, to Ottawa and I worked for Health Canada. I had a fairly senior job with Health Canada there for about four years. And uh, it was that was an interesting experience now, looking back on it, because I, I got to know the people that write the food guide, for instance. Mm. And I got, to, I got a real uh, inside experience of how the health bureaucracy works. So that, that's been an interesting sort of um, a tour of, you know, and, and, a, and a learning experience. Yeah. But I'm very much a West Coast uh, denizen now. Yeah. I can understand why, as much as I love the Maritimes, I, I like the yeah. Pacific uh, yeah. region. Yeah. I spent a summer in the Maritimes many years ago and it was lovely, lovely. And we used to meet the lobster fishermen in the morning and cook up these fresh lobsters and, you know, just a wonderful place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, the Maritimes. Diet food. Maritimes are, have a charm, you know, that's unique there. Yeah. I, I would agree completely. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but you, so how did you go from heavy equipment or construction to medicine? How did that happen? Uh, well, I get a lot of people ask me that, obviously. And I told, tell them I got tired of kicking mud off my boots at the end of the day. <laughs> but but and, and and i i you know i really enjoyed working in heavy industry you know industrial construction jobs and um i i uh, i the reason i ended up going into medicine i kind of felt like i had unfinished business you know that i should get a higher you know get a degree get higher education and i had friends who had become doctors and you know i really respected what they did and i thought hey i can do that right so <laughs> 
uh, I ended up going back to school and, and with the purpose of getting into medicine. And interestingly, when I did that, the construction company I was working for at the time, when I told them I was going to quit and go back to school, they said, if you go into engineering, we'll pay your way. And I thought, you know, <laughs> that's all. Mm. that was a tempting offer, but no, I'm going to take a different path. Yeah. It's always interesting when the engineers come into medicine. Well, you know, I worked in that sphere, you know, I did civil layout, I was a surveyor, you know, I worked with the, all the engineering staff on any of these big jobs. And it was, you know, I loved that work. It was very, I, I really did. And you know what it boils down to really? I think engineers essentially are problem solvers, right? They've been equipped with all the tools you need to analyze and solve a problem. And I think that's why some of our, you know, leaders here, like Mike Eads is an engineer, his background is engineering. And, and there are others, I can't remember now who, but others where I've been impressed that their ability to analyze and solve this problem comes from their engineering training, not the indoctrination training we get in medicine, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> or nutrition science, right? Okay, so you're clicking along as a, as a um, what was the um, administration kind of position, if, if I've got mm -hmm. the time right. Yeah. And, and something came to your attention that you needed to make a change. Yeah. So that was 18 years ago. And at that time, I was working for the federal health department. I had a, what was pretty stressful job. It was, I was at the at that time, I had relocated back to the coast from Ottawa, where I was here. I was the regional director here for all the uh, First Nations health services. And uh, it was a big job. I had 200 staff, uh, $200 million budget, you know, huge geographical area to, uh, I was responsible for. And it was a very stressful job. And I, and, and I, and I say that in context, as context because I think stress is a factor in what happens to to one in terms of metabolic health and things like that and i was neglecting my health and ironically i'd been a vegetarian for 17 years because i thought that was a sensible way to eat you know a healthy way to eat and uh, uh boom i just i had i developed full-blown type 2 diabetes it was like kaboom suddenly uh i had this big wake-up call mm. yeah and you know, I've told this story a few times. You could probably find it on videos on YouTube, but I diagnosed myself and uh, realized that I had all the signs and symptoms. You know, it, it sneaked up on me, but had I been paying closer attention, I would have noticed it sooner. And I was out of clinical practice at that time. I'd been out for a few years doing administrative work and didn't feel like I knew the, the current uh, therapies well enough to figure out what I should do. So I thought I'll buy myself some time by eliminating carbohydrates to try and minimize my blood sugar because, you know, my knowledge of diabetes, I had standard medical training was carbohydrates raise your blood sugar, right? So I thought, well, it makes sense. I'll avoid them for now until I basically essentially figure out what kind of drug I should be on, right? Mm-hmm. And then, of course, when I stopped eating carbs, within days, you know, everything was trending back to normal. You know, I, all my signs and symptoms, my blurry vision, my polyuria, polydipsia, you know, I was drinking too much, peeing too much, you know, I started losing weight. I, I, over the following month, I lost literally a pound a day for a month. My clothes just fell off me. I had a good friend who was convinced I had cancer and I wasn't telling anyone. <laughs> I, I was wearing suits to the office. I had to take them in and get the pants taken in. And then I had to do it again. Like it was amazing. And uh, so that, that's what got this started for me. I, I just, I was astounded mm. at how quickly and effectively this reversed everything. Mm -hmm. And uh I was surprised that nowhere in my training or clinical practice had this ever been proposed as an option. 
for managing diabetes. And I had actually, in my residency, I'd done additional diabetes clinics because one of the first things I did after I uh, got into practice was I was the camp doctor at the children's diabetes camp for, I, don't, I can't remember, three or four years. So I knew my diabetes, you know, in this case, type one, but, you know, type two as well. And this had never, ever been mentioned as a possibility. And yet here I was, an example of uh, a miraculous turnaround, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So that compelled me to pursue this, you know? I, so I, I, that, that was the beginning of a long and eventful journey, both personally and, you know, in a broader uh, perspective. Now, as I remember, um, you at one point, well, you, you described your uh, dietary change and how you didn't exactly share all that was going on at home. Oh, yeah. And, <laughs> and when you finally did, you found that your wife probably knew more than you did about it. But... Yeah, because uh, we had, uh, my wife uh, is a little OCD and she worries about things. So I never told her that I made this diagnosis, but how long can you conceal from your wife that you're not eating (laughs) bread and carbs? (laughs) So she, uh, you know, uh, clued in fairly quickly and, and she said, well, you're on the Atkins diet dummy, you know, and, uh, and she had an Atkins diet book because like many women after the birth of our son, she struggled to get rid of her post uh, pregnancy weight and she had picked up an Atkins book and I kind of brushed it off you know like yeah whatever and uh, uh, she brought it out dusted it off and I read it and holy mackerel yes I was on the Atkins diet basically yeah and and if I'm remembering right at first um, Dr. Atkins was about weight loss and yeah. he didn't so much talk about diabetes or metabolic no. disease mm-hmm. and and certainly we've come a bit from, what was that, the 80s that, that his book came out? I think it was earlier than that. I think it was the early 70s. 70s. Yeah, yeah. For his first book. Yeah. So that and the dietary guidelines, wonderful. Um, at least in yeah. the United States. Yeah. But, you know, I've le- I, so I've met so many wonderful people, including his wife, uh, his mm-hmm. widow, and also uh, some of the people that work closely with him, like Jackie Eberstein and... Uh, uh, Name, names, miss, my memory's failing me right now. But uh, uh, Jackie, I had long conversations with Jackie, and she ex- explained to me that in his actual clinic, he was treating all the metabolic problems and beyond with a low carb ketogenic diet approach. He just didn't write books about that part of it. And uh, there was a di- Atkins for Diabetes book that did come out uh, probably about. 15, 16 years ago. And I think Jackie was a co-author on that book, but it didn't didn't make a lot of headlines. I mean, it kind of came and went, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When a colleague um, called me after his diagnosis um, and I went to my go-to source, which is Adele Height, um, yeah, mm-hmm. that was the book that I ended up saying, you need to get this as well as you need mm. to go to dietdoctor.com. And, uh, to his credit, his family did, and he's not a diabetic anymore. Um, so, mm. okay. Um, what I've, I've heard you talk about how this the the level of this epidemic i'll use that word although sometimes i wonder whether pandemic isn't a better phrase mm-hmm. except that we're talking about something that's called non-communicable mm-hmm. um so maybe there's a problem with using pandemic and non-communicable together but this is a global phenomenon mm-hmm. and it does impact different groups of people differently mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. And, and so you would have had the opportunity serving the First Nations people, at least in the British Columbia. I don't know if that was to Alberta as well, or what, what, what was the footprint of that region that you were serving as an administrator? 
Well, when I was in Ottawa, I, I had uh, the, the programs that I were invo- was involved with covered the whole country. Okay. So consequently, I traveled the whole country, including the far north, which, you know, was a wonderful experience. But uh, what we, you know, what we were understanding, and this is 20 years or more ago, was that First Nations, the indigenous populations, were uh, the leading edge of this epidemic and were communities were being devastated by this. I call it a slow motion train wreck. You know, it's just just a heartbreaking situation in First Nations communities with diabetes, you know. So that, you know, was top of mind when I made my own, when I had this epiphany of how I could fix myself. My immediate thought was, I'm in the midst of this epidemic and this these amongst these people could this help them the way it's helped me which is how i ended up doing the big fat diet project um so could you describe that project just a little bit well you see i was you know in working in the senior level of uh the federal health department uh in the first nations health section and uh i at the time was fortunate because I had people that uh, at levels above me that were, you know, critical thinkers who uh, were open to trying something different. And I was an example to them of how this could work. And uh, I, my immediate superior, basically, I, I was asking them to fund me to try and do this kind of work in First Nations populations. And uh, the person I reported to there was an economics PhD, you know, and he said, well, nothing else is working, so why not try something different? And I was able to use the levers of bureaucracy and shake some money loose to do this project uh, that became the subject of the My Big Fat Diet documentary where I went into a small First Nations community and we recruited people and uh, put them on a low carb diet that was modeled on their traditional diet and then documented the results. And it was good, you know, it was all good. So that would have been more fish and game. Well, um, yeah, there, the traditional diet, I mean, I became, became very interested in studying what people ate here and, uh, you know, one of my brilliant mentors in all this was Steve Finney. And Steve had a real interest in Northern indigenous people in their diets. And he'd, he'd read extensively diaries of explorers and things. And so he was very interested in pursuing this. And we, so we traveled the coast here and talked to elders and they took us into their pantries and showed us their traditional foods. And so that was all really interesting. But the bottom line was there was no significant source of carbohydrates in the traditional diet compared to what they eat now. It's just night and day. I mean, they eat not only a high carb diet, but they eat the worst, crappiest carbs. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it doesn't take a lot of brain power to connect those dots you know, this huge change in diet and this tremendous epidemic of metabolic disease, you know. Is it bannock is the bread? Is that bannock bread, yeah, fried bread. And, fried. and, and you know, when I, when I talk, you know, I used to do a lot of uh, talks in First Nations audiences. Uh, I would be promoting the idea of traditional foods and they go, well, bannock bread's a traditional food. <laughs> I would say, well, where did your uh, ancestors cultivate the wheat and how did they refine it? And, you know, all these questions and they're going, oh, click, click, you know, yeah, maybe not so much. I think it was an Irish uh, fried bread tradition from fur traders that came across with the Hudson's Bay Company that introduced bannock bread to this population. Yeah. So uh, is it, is it pronounced Ulican? Yes, Ulican. Ulican is a fascinating story uh, because one of the things we discovered was in our, you know, educating ourselves about what was the traditional diet here is that the staple food on the West Coast wasn't salmon. It was Ulican grease. Hmm. 
that people consumed huge amounts of the fat rendered from this little fish, the ulican fish, that's like a smelt. And uh, back before all this environmental devastation, there were ulican runs in every river from the Aleutians all the way down to the Cal California. Ulican fish that ran up the rivers in the springtime in massive, massive amounts. They literally changed the color of the rivers. And they were, it was called the rescue fish because it was the first seafood that became available after the rivers broke up. And they would be pursued by the, all kinds of predators, sea mammals, predator fish, birds. I've been up in the north on rivers when the Ulicans were running and you have swarms of uh, flocks of seagulls and eagles and egrets and other predator birds swarming over the river while the Ulicans run up the river. And now what happened? Sorry, go ahead. And what, what's been happening for time immemorial is First Nations who are located on, on the coast, when the Ulican runs start, they had Ulican camps on the riverbanks and they would move the whole village down into their Ulican camps. Each family had their own camp and they would start catching the ulican fish and then rendering, rendering the oil from the fish. It's a very oily fish. It's something like 40% of the fish is oil. And they would, uh, it was a long, uh, delicate process of fermenting the fish and then uh, simmering it in large vats over long periods of time and gently cooling it and then the oil would surface and draining the oil off. And in the old days, they, they, you know, they would spend months doing this and they would store it in these beautiful bent wood cedar boxes, which were watertight. And you see them now in the souvenir shops and things, but this was their original purpose was to store the ulican grease. And they, they would store it, they would bury it and store it. And it was, you know, shelf life was, couple of years or more. Mm. And they traded it. Uh, other populations that didn't have access to the coastal Ulican runs wanted the grease and they, they would trek inland over trails through the mountains that were called Ulican trails. And that they would haul this grease and there were uh, re, uh, you know encounters with early explorers who described whole villages trekking, packing these boxes of grease and even the dogs had grease boxes on their backs going inland to trade the grease. It was a highly sought after food. Do ulicans return to the sea after they yeah. spawn? Uh, no, I think they're like other uh, fish that they spawn and die. Uh -huh. I'm, I'm presuming that. I, that's what yeah. most of them do. Yeah. Okay. I th and I think they'd also be known as candlefish in yes. some places. Yeah, there's this old mythology that you could, they're so fatty that you could put a wick in them and light them and they would burn as a candle. We tried that one time and we couldn't make it work, but that's one of the stories. It's a yeah. great story. It's a, mm -hmm. yeah, just, uh, once again, the facts get in the way of a great story. Um, so they had this diet that was based on animal source food yeah. and especially mm -hmm. The, the fats from yeah. animal source foods. It was a high fat diet. Yeah, animal marine sources. And the thing about the ulican was why? This is the discussion Finney and I had when I had introduced him to this. I took him up into the north on one of the ulican rivers and we met people and he was fascinated by this. And the question that was really interesting to us was in an environment where there are a lot of other sources of fat, animal fats, you know, uh, they, they hunted caribou and moose and deer and mountain goat. And uh, they had uh, sea mammals, which were very fatty and uh, other fatty fish. Why this one particular little fish? Why did they go to all that trouble? And uh, we actually ended up publishing paper. We got the ulican grease analyzed in Doug Bebus's lab in down in Minnesota. He does uh, uh, lipid uh, science down there. And we published a paper. And one of the fascinating findings was that the fatty acid profile of the ulican grease was very similar to the fatty acid profile of human adipose tissue. 
Hmm. So think about that for a minute. Here's a population and they're eating a diet where their energy, primary energy source is fat. And I've over the years now come to believe that this is how we're meant to eat, that fat is meant to be our primary fuel. So think this through. If fat is your primary fuel and you store it for rainy days, you know, as a, as a fuel, uh, would, would you store it in the most desirable fatty acid profile? Of course. You're going to store the fat the way you like it. So that when you're looking for fat in your environment, dietary fat, the one that most closely matches your preferred fatty acid profile is the one you're going to prefer. And somehow, you know, eons ago, these primitive people, not so primitive, because they figured this out, that in all the sources in their environment, this, the fat in that one little fish is the ideal source of dietary fat. And they did it without mass spectrometers and things like that, you know, know, this ancient dietary wisdom, you know, it's just, it's a wonderful story. You know, this is fascinating. So back to the people in this community that you were able to get this um, Mm -hmm. uh, program uh, project run in. Um, One of the things that I remember was the immediate uh, shortage of a particular vegetable that created. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so we, we told them, we think your traditional diet was the right diet and that this modern diet with all the carb stuff in it is what's causing these problems. So let's go back to your traditional diet, but it doesn't mean you may not have all the traditional foods you need to populate a traditional diet. So here are the foods you can eat from the store that would conform to the outline of a traditional diet. So we included meats and you know dairy and things like that, but we also said you can eat non-starchy vegetables and they, developed this passion for cauliflower <laughs> they couldn't the store couldn't keep cauliflower in stock you know and <laughs> when they ran out of cauliflower there was this panic you know what are we going to do there's no cauliflower so and, that was and as, as i remember the community was served by boats right that stuff has an come, island yeah it's yeah so so restocking the the supermarket was a bit more than just the next truck showing up Uh, well the and the interesting thing there was um we we had to design it as a study to get clearance through the bureaucracy to do it so we recruited people in through a formal process and i think we recruited about close to 100 people we probably had about 60 that were stuck with it but in the community there was a ripple effect into the community we, got, we started to get pick up signals that lots of people were doing this, not just the people we had identified for the study. So to the extent that I went one day and met with the manager of the grocery store, and I said, you know, we're doing this study, you know, and, and uh, uh, could I get sales data on certain food items? Because I have the feeling a lot of people have changed how they're eating. And, and she, said, she said, we knew there was something funny going on. <laughs> because there was a huge change in certain products you know the the purchasing of things for instance diet pop went way up and regular pop went down and um uh and and certain vegetables like cauliflower went up and cream whole cream the things you would expect and there were big swings in, in the demand for these things I think the, the, the funniest one was pork rinds. There was zero pork rinds and then it suddenly just went through the roof. So we deduced from that, that there was a huge uptake throughout the community, not just in the study group. Yeah. Um, and I remember sort of this uh, celebration potlatch kind of, um, community event and one of the things was people wheeling in wheelbarrows bags oh, yeah. of I think it was sugar it might have been flour and representing the weight that had been lost and stacking that up 
yeah. I can't recall how much right now, but it was kind of impactful. Yeah. Yeah, we got that idea from Oprah. Remember when she lost weight and she brought in the wheelbarrow Which time? of fat, you know, into her onto the stage. But anyway, we did that we, with uh, sacks of flour, and uh, people had significant weight loss. Yeah, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and all the other things you would expect. The metabolic markers went off. The, a lot of people stopped their medication and got back into the normal zone on their blood sugars, and it was yeah everything you know and this was done in 2006 so we're seeing studies now you know big studies you know the verta study all of which are showing similar things so it, back then it was a bit surprising to people now mm -hmm. i think people are getting used to the idea that this really does work mm -hmm. well okay that's a good lead in um so it works. So there's mm. studies that support it. So it's not a mm -hmm. fad. It's, it's, it's founded and, yeah. and mm -hmm. people are having success. What's holding it back? Oh, I mean, if we, if we think about oat bran and, and I mean, I'm old enough to remember the oat bran craze and overnight that thing became in everything. Um, yeah. And there's lots of reasons for that. But again, what's, what's holding back the kind of wider awareness and adoption of uh, therapeutic carbohydrate reduction for treating or addressing metabolic illness and, in your mind? Well, that's a, that's a huge subject. And um, I think at the essence of it is that there is a, it's not a overt conspiracy. There's a confluence of agendas that serve to, to keep people eating the way they do that turns out to be harmful uh, to their health, but beneficial to corporations. There are huge vested interests out there that benefit from the kind of diet people eat, you know, this harmful, American standard American diet, but it's not just American, it's everywhere now. And they have uh, allies in other areas, the religious uh, proscriptions for vegetarian diet has a powerful influence. You're gonna, you said, you told me you're gonna interview Brenda Fetke. She's done tremendous work in explaining that from the perspective of the influence of Seventh-day Adventist Church, which they don't hide that. They're, they're proud about it. They published an article boasting about it, basically. And then, and then there are the, I guess you would call them ethical vegans, you know, people who believe that it's harm, harmful to eat animal foods. And they've got an interest in, you know, for whatever reason, they think that low carb means harm to animals. And so there are these spheres of influence out there that have a common agenda. And, uh, you know, I mean, lately people have become much more aware of the influence of fake news, right? <laughs> how you can put things out through me various media and influence people's opinion, whether or not those things are true or not. And I think uh, this has been a factor for, you know, decades. People know how to manipulate public opinion and people with money and the means and the brains can do that. And I think there's been a lot of that going on in terms of influencing people how to eat and influencing, you know, the science, the so-called science, how science is done and how it's published and disseminated and how guidelines are written, you know, published and how, you know, I, I in, in a lot of my talks to doctors, I talk about how we are herd animals. We're taught to stay in the middle of the herd, that you're safe if you're in the middle of the herd. I was specifically told when you start practicing, don't be the first one to use a new therapy and don't be the last one. Stay in the middle. That's where it's safe, you know, and herds have their leaders. And in medicine, the leaders of the herd are the big opinion makers, the guideline, the guys that populate the guideline committees, you know, the, the journal editors, the big names. And uh, I think the, the vested interests have learned how to manipulate them and then they lead the herd, you know? And that, that's a hard thing to penetrate. It's hard to get there. Yeah. 
but I think that it's fair to say now, at least in the States, that this approach is now being at least acknowledged within communities like the American Diabetes Association mm -hmm. and some others are accepting it. There are now some tools like clinical guidelines that are available to help physicians yeah. implement this mm -hmm. in their practice with their patients. Mm -hmm. um, and we would certainly encourage listeners who decide that they want to approach, uh, apply this um, to certainly do so in uh, consultation with their uh, healthcare, especially yeah. if they're on any mm -hmm. kind of medication for blood pressure or cholesterol mm -hmm. or yeah. Um, so there are tools available for them. There are tools available for people to learn more, uh, mentioned dietdoctor.com is one mm -hmm. place to go to, mm -hmm. um, for information. Um, so the, uh, I remember once upon a time you had a blog, is it sort of like mine where it's kind of, it's dormant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for, for a number of reasons. But one of the reasons is that I've been overtaken. You know, mm, there mm. are blogs everywhere. And look at you, you're doing a podcast now. And, and it, you know, there's lots of podcasts. And so I initially, I felt the need okay. to pursue that because I was a little bit of a voice in the wilderness. Now, there's so many people that are smarter and better than communicators than me doing this kind of work i don't feel the need to do it secondly it became difficult because when i transitioned back from i was doing administration then research when i transitioned back into full-time clinical practice i basically had to re-educate myself to become competent and to, and uh, they set some bars for me to clear before i could they would the licensing body would let me start again so mm. i had to basically do about a 15 month retraining time uh -huh. and so on and and that occupied all my time and I, I just couldn't take the time to blog at that point and then things evolved you know so i yeah my blog is still out there and you can read it but yeah. uh there's lots of good stuff you know and, and some of these other bloggers are just so good i i love mike Eads stuff that he writes and uh, mm -hmm. and you mentioned diet doctor this is what i refer my patients to now i i used to write out lists and you know prescriptions for them what to eat what not to eat uh, andre zeinfeld has done such a good job on that website and it's reliable i tell them be careful where you go on the internet it's not all reliable but diet doctor is a reliable source and it's full of uh, good information and you mentioned drugs i do always caution people uh, if you're on drugs that affect your blood sugar or your blood pressure you have to be cautious about how you do this because you're probably going to have to get off those drugs and how to manage that can be a little tricky. Yeah. I, I misspoke when I said cholesterol medication. Um, thank you. Well, <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that's a whole nother question, that's but a, it's that's a whole other issue. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So would it be fair to just kind of run very quickly through the sorts of things that someone might notice from, you know, an annual physical or, their own condition that would encourage them to? So when I uh, meet a new patient, and this is in a general practice, it's not a diet practice or diabetes practice, general practice, uh, after a, above a certain age, or if I look at them and I think you're getting into metabolic trouble, what I order is standard blood work, you know, hematology and so on. But I do a, a fasted lipid profile and I always do a hemoglobin A1C, which is the long range blood sugar number, and a CRP, which is a general inflammatory marker, okay? And what I'm looking for there, I also do ferritin, which can also be an inflammatory marker. It's the iron storage number, but what I'm looking for are signs of insulin resistance. And you can pick these signs up long before people get into trouble with diabetes. And what I look for is uh, a hemoglobin A1C that might still be in the normal range, but is starting to creep up. And in my, 
the way I, the, 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 the rules I subscribe to are that if your hemoglobin A1C is, oh, there goes your, you haven't, you're using the wrong light bulbs there. Yeah. Uh, that if the hemoglobin A1C goes from, is it from 5.8 to 6.4, that's prediabetes. 6.5 and above, you've got your diagnosis of diabetes. And what I find is even below 5.8, 5.7, 5.6, 5 5.5, down in that zone, I'm starting to think early insulin resistance. And then I look in the lipid profile and I, you know, the headline number is total cholesterol. That's, that means nothing really. LDL, the so-called bad cholesterol, and HDL, the so-called good cholesterol, and triglyceride, which is the fat your liver makes, essentially. Okay, those are the things I'm interested in. And LDL, the bad cholesterol, actually has, there's actually good LDL and bad LDL. So there's good bad cholesterol and bad bad cholesterol. Does that, does that make any sense? No, probably not. That's how crazy things are. But what we're talking about is particle size, right? LDL, we, we have a general understanding now that if your LDL is large particle LDL, that's safe LDL. It's the small, dense, oxidized LDL that's implicated in coronary artery disease and other problems. So you want to have large particle LDL. You got to have some LDL. If you had no LDL, you'd be a dead, you know? You'd be, so it's part of our natural physiology, right? The interesting thing about this is LDL, I mean, the, the LDL uh, uh, risk with rising LDL does not exist if you have high HDL. And we know this from good data from decades of things like uh, uh, Framingham, where they've been studying people for decades. We know that it doesn't matter what level your LDL is, as long as you've got good HDL. If you've got low HDL, then yes, your risk goes up with a rising LDL. So HDL is an important part of this, okay? We also know that triglycerides are an important part of this. And it turns out that if you take an objective look at all these markers, total LDL, HDL, triglyceride, the single most predictive number in that whole thing about your predicting your uh, cardiometabolic health in the future is actually the ratio of triglyceride over HDL. And it gets confusing because the Americans have a different numbering or different uh, unit system than we do. In Canada, I look for a ratio under 0.76. I've read other things that suggest under 0.86 is good. I generally tell patients if you're under one, you're doing okay. If you're under 0.76, you're in the optimum zone. In the US, the numbers are different. I think you wanna be generally under two, maybe as high as under three. But what that tells us, if you've got a favorable triglyceride HDL ratio, not only is it a good marker in terms of predicting your overall risk, it also tells us that you don't have, you're not developing insulin resistance in your liver, which is important. And it also tells us that you've got large particle LDL. So this is how I analyze a lipid panel. And I also, when I, and I sit down with my patients and I work them through that discussion. And I also tell them that I'm on the fringe, that if they saw any other doctor and certainly any cardiologist, they would look at the LDL and if it was elevated, boom, you're on a statin drug. And then I introduce them to the number needed to treat. <laughs> There's that website, vnnt.com, where these guys have analyzed all the uh, data on therapies and investigations and so on. And in the statin data there, there is not what I would characterize as a very unconvincing argument to take a statin if you don't have proven cardiovascular disease. And I introduce my patients to that, but I tell them, you know, this, this is my position and I think it's well supported, but the majority of doctors would tell you otherwise. So I essentially let them make a choice. Do they believe this crazy, wacky West Coast doctor or do they want to go with the mainstream? And I actually, I actually hold my nose and prescribe statins sometimes if they choose, that's what they choose. <laughs>
Uh, but if you'd like oh. to eat bacon and eggs or you yeah. know, bacon cheeseburgers without the bun or yeah. uh, salmon or, mm -hmm. you know, lobster, as we were saying, dipped mm -hmm. in real butter, yeah. please tell me nobody dips it. Never mind. Um, <laughs> or, I mean, that kind of a diet is not necessarily a hardship in any way. So um, try it for a while. It won't kill you. You may, in fact, see that things improve yeah. and and doing so you should have confidence that it's not going to hurt you and mm -hmm. and then some of us can talk about how you're not killing the planet either and 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 what i'd this, like to this get... is the important work you are going to do is convince us that we're not killing the planet because that agenda creeps in everywhere and what I'd like some help in is um, having people who can say, well, what's the, what's the environmental impact of chronic disease epidemic? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, Absolutely. What's the, this is unsustainable, right? In, in... And, and, yeah. And the FAO said we have 60 harvests left at the rate at which we're destroying the topsoil. That, mm -hmm. that to me is a bigger threat than oceans rising you know mm -hmm. certainly the time frame shorter yeah if the ocean rises i get closer to the waterfront here but if all the food is gone i'm in big trouble you know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just... Exactly. <laughs> okay um jay thank you so oh there was one more thing um the thought of i, I got to speak to a undergraduate class via zoom of course and try to encourage them about, you know, getting excited about being a forage geek, you know, and why mm -hmm. you would want to go into forage agronomy or ruminant mm -hmm. agriculture. But, you know, people looking at maybe going into medicine. And then I remembered that your son is kind of going a different path than the typical North American um Pat, well, listen, is that something you want to talk about i'm well i'm happy to brag about my son of course good <laughs> <laughs> he got he I, my feeling about medical training here in north america is that the most stressful part of medical school was pre-med the four years you spend in a time where you're struggling to compete with everybody else who's trying to get into those same coveted spots you don't know if you're going to make it or not. Uh, you're doing, you're taking a bunch of coursework that you don't really want to take, but you have to take to get through the, that little opening at the end of the tunnel there. Uh, that was a very stressful time compared to actually being in med school, which is stressful. You know, it's, it's very demanding and stressful, but I thought it was more stressful in pre-med. So we shopped around and we found out that there are places in the world where you can get a good medical education straight out of high school. So he made the decision when he was in grade 10 that he wanted to go to med school, which was good. I mean, a lot of kids don't know what they want to do at that age, but he did. And, and it was one of the reasons I think it was because I, when he was little, I used to drag him around with me all the time when I went places to do interesting medical things, you know, visiting First Nations communities. I dragged him all over New Zealand and Australia, you know, visiting Maori. What a, that poor boy. Jeez. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> He'll need a lifetime of counseling. But, <laughs> but, but so he, and, and then he worked in the evenings when I did evening shifts in the clinic, he would man the front desk when he was like 14, 15 years old, you know, sweet. And so he developed an appreciation of what working in the medical sphere was like and the variety of, uh, of uh, things you can do in medicine because I was working in public health and administration and things as well as clinical and research because I used to drag them around with me when I was looking at Ulican runs, you know. Uh, so, uh, so he made that decision in grade 10 and he was in an international baccalaureate school program. So he ramped up to the higher level courses in sciences and he designed the program to meet the requirements of a medical admission you know, curriculum. And he did very well in his coursework. And he did other interesting things. To, how do you build an interesting CV when you're 16, 17, right? So he'd worked in the clinic. He'd, he'd actually done some work in the summer on a hepatitis B uh, research project in one of my uh, 
addiction clinics that I was doing. And he well, probably the most interesting thing he did was uh, he and I trekked in the Himalayas where he did a, he conducted a clinical trial to see if a ketogenic diet would improve your ability to resist altitude sickness. And it turns out we searched the literature and nobody had ever done that clinical trial. There was a couple of articles, one which speculated that it might be helpful because when the brain's burning ketones, there's less inflammatory activity and uh, they'd speculated that it might work. So he actually did a clinical trial while we were high up in the Himalayas struggling to breathe. And he, and he wrote a paper, a big paper for his IB diploma on this, you know, a big research paper and uh, got a good mark on that paper. And so he'd done some things that made him look interesting. And uh, so it's a six year program in Ireland. They took him into the second year when he was, he had just turned 18, started the sec in the second year of that program. So he was facing five years, he's halfway through now and he's had consistent uh, first-class honors in all his, all his courses so far. So he's in his element, he's yes. loving it. Yes. He's doing very well. So I, and, and, and he'll often text me and say, well, we're talking about, uh, you know, in, uh, diabetes now. And I'll say, just tell them what they want to hear. <laughs> don't, don't rock the boat. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> They're talking about cholesterol and heart disease. Just tell them what they want to hear. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so is that something that because you're Canadian, you had access to? No, no, even no, it, the states could. In fact, follow that there, path. It's there's a there's a there's a an office in San Francisco that covers North America that that helps you get into these medical schools. It's called I think it's called the Bridge Program. It's mm -hmm. a North Atlantic Bridge they call it. So they, they've got this business going where they facilitate kids from anywhere in North America to get into the Irish medical schools. And the school he's in, he's in the Royal College of Surgeons right in the middle of Dublin. And he's in a, in a residence, uh, you know, kind of an apartment facility with roommates from all over the world. And they just, they just have a way, they just get along so well. And it's just been such an enriching experience for him in so many ways but he's getting a first-class medical education and he's thriving in it. So I'm very proud of my boy. Yeah. And you have reason to be, and um, thank you for sharing <laughs> that. That's great news. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I don't know when you'll get a chance to see him in person again. Um, he, he came home two days ago for his Christmas break. Oh, he's really? Doing, he's going to do all his exams online. Yeah. So he's, he's sequestered wow. in his room now. We slide the food <laughs> under his door while he's... Fruit leathers and he's living on should... pizza and ham because it fits under the door <laughs> no no he's, yeah. we, he eats a very clean keto diet actually yeah 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 i i would be surprised if that weren't the case but it was an interesting image thank you yeah. for it um jay thank you so much for your time thank you for mm. what you've been doing and what you continue to do and i look forward to the next time we can get together in person yeah yeah and Peter, I really appreciate the work you're doing. I, I think you're uniquely positioned to help uh, fend off all this stuff about our diet harming the planet, because I think the opposite is true. I agree, doctor. I concur. Well, thank you.